Hello, and welcome to Rocket Accelerated Geek Conversation. This episode is brought to you by Pingdom and the IntraZone from Microsoft. I'm Simone Rochefort, and I am a senior video producer at Polygon. I almost said it Rocket. Uh, am I <laughs> senior too. yet, Christina? Yeah, you're senior. I'm a senior podcast host at Rocket, and I'm here today with Christina Warren, um, senior cloud advocate at Microsoft. If Brie were here, I think she'd be the senior executive director at Rebellion Pack. I think I've made that joke before, but, the, I think but so. she's not here is the thing. She just got her second vaccine, and she, her body is transforming into She-Hulk right now. Um, yes. So next time she's on the show, she's going to be super strong. She is going to be able to, like, control us just with her voice. Um because I think that's the that's the side effect that they're reporting for that particular vaccine, uh, which is pretty cool. Like, I, I just got a three-foot-long extendable tongue that I can use to grab pencils and stuff, but... Nice, nice. You know, I can whatever. occasionally shoot uh, lasers out of my eyes. That's, uh... Occasionally, that's, like, do you decide when to do it? Well, I'm still trying to work that out. Like, I, I it, it happens, and sometimes I can control it, but other times, like, it just seems like I can't pull it up on demand. So well, that's I'm working annoying. on it. I know. Well, I, it, working the bugs out, you know, it, it's still a new superpower. Yeah. It's nice to have a project, though, you know? Yeah, this is this is true. I, the, the tongue thing, that's really cool, though. Like, I, I'm, I'm into that. Yeah, it's all right. I mean, sometimes it gets a little... <laughs> You know, then you just suck it right back in. So let's talk about today's show. <laughs> it's actually very, very sad that uh, Brie has to miss today's show because today, just as promised on Twitter, we have got a triple scam town for you folks. And they, at least two out of the three, are tech related. So it is a real, real great week here for us at Rocket and a terrible sort of decade for investors uh, all over the world. Uh, but let's get into it. All right. So this first one is a story uh, that was reported out by Gizmodo, but it covers a crime ring that has been going on for years and years. It opens with this excellent image of an actor who was hired to shoot a promotional video where he plays the CEO of a tech company called Quantum Code. Uh, this, the CEO, this fictional CEO, is hawking this new investment software that would basically turn binary options and in investing into a guaranteed moneymaker. So, Christina, explain for me really quickly what binary options are. Uh, I think they're kind of nonsense, right? Like, isn't that... They are nonsense. It's basically saying, like, I bet, yes or no, this stock is going to go up. And right. if it's yes, yeah, you get money. If it's not, oh, you know, you do, you lose all your money. All or nothing options is, is often what they're kind of, they're, they're, they're kind of called. Um, and, and, like, they can be used in, like, theoretical asset pricing. And I'm reading this from Wikipedia right now. They are prone to fraud. Oh, uh, well, understandably, well, well. because like, like, how would people do that? Because it, it, it's it, I mean, because it's essentially like playing roulette, but just betting on like red or black. Yeah, it's like stock market, but with the gambling turned all the way up. So yeah. this actor, after he uh, appeared in this promotional ad where he's playing the CEO, he starts getting uh, LinkedIn messages from people saying they want to like take off his head and and poop in his body and that he's lot they've lost a lot of money because of him um and he was like uh oh and it turns out quantum code is one of many many fraud organizations as christina said binary options prone to fraud uh one of many many scam apps that purported to be investment schemes that relied on super cool powerful algorithms that would help you crack the binary option investing scheme uh but which actually just relied on brokers pressuring clients to eh, put a little more money in hey buddy oh we're doing great actually with your money put a little more money in it's called um, a boiler room yeah <laughs> and then they would basically lose all of it oh i'm going to read uh from the gizmodo piece the following quote because i think it paints a beautiful picture uh quote unquote 
The odds and payout structure of these trades made it almost impossible for customers to win. Even if they did somehow win or wanted to cut their losses, the brokerages often just wouldn't give them any of their money back. And if a given investor's account ever managed to beat the odds, some brokers just directly manipulated trading conditions to ensure investor losses. In other cases, it wasn't totally clear whether any trading of binary options ever Mm -hmm. even occurred. Well, well, well. So these, uh, the the scam was perpetuated through mainly uh, online marketing through promotional yes. videos that were shot, like with this actor that I mentioned. Uh, videos that were sent out via spam emailing lists and run by marketers. Who there were enough of them that they had their own convention. They got together in Florida and talked about how good they were at scamming and had secret Skype channels where they got together and talked about how good they were at scamming and how good they were at targeting people who are financially desperate or digitally illiterate. This, and and it went on for so long, Christina. That's yeah, my summary. W- yeah, no, it went on for a really long time. Um, I'm, We're going to have a link in the show notes. It's an older article and the YouTube embed has disappeared because I think it was using a very, very old version of the, the Vox Media CMS, but... Um, you can find it on YouTube, but there was a great article uh, nine years ago now called um, Scam World, all about um, affiliate marketing, which is what this took advantage of, and really diving into how some of these, you know, scams and kind of confidence schemes work. And and clearly, this is not a a new thing that that you're talking about. Like like uh, this particular like method of doing it is kind of novel in the sense that like a lot of it was kind of early on kind of going after crypto and certain things like that and and, and selling like this software that is going to be able to to make these trades for you and let you get rich quick and whatnot. But a lot of these ideas are really old, like, um, you know, probably, you know, going back to the Middle Ages or something, if, if you want to be like real about, you know, some some of that stuff. But the, what they what they did with this stuff is obviously I think kind of taking it to the next level in terms of really um, doing the high pressure sales plus the affiliate marketing plus kind of like the the, the tech angle aspect of it uh, and it went on for a really long time and a lot of people lost a lot of money uh, which is really terrible. Mm-hmm. So the uh, many of these scammers were uh, charged back in the in late 2020, I believe, uh, which is how Gizmodo got in touch with this actor because he was called in to give a deposition. Um, but it was a really what w- what is really interesting to me about this. A lot of things are interesting, but one of the things that's most interesting is just how wide ranging. It was in terms of like there were all these marketers that were working together in Florida and they were Mm -hmm. colluding with this third party who was a producer in Oregon who kind of nebulously may or may not have really had an idea of what kind of videos he was being asked to make. But he was there, a a third party who they say, hey, we're we got this budget Uh, go shoot this ad for us. And he would be in charge of directing that, getting all the actors together, um, and just kind of producing a commercial, essentially, which is a totally normal thing to do if you are, you know, a producer with ties to the theatrical community in the town that you live. Um, And then there were all the actors that were called in to read parts and, you know, performed in these ads that Again, like there are these degrees of responsibility and of yes. knowledge that kind of emanate out of this central, very corrupt core of people who definitely knew and acknowledged in their Skype conversations that they were scammers who were scamming and they loved to scam and they couldn't wait to scam more people. And mm-hmm. it would be great if they, they had this joke where if, what if they could set up a, a charity for the victims of their scam so they could get some money back? So they could scam them again into reinvesting their money one more time and lose it all again. Um, So, (laughs) like, A, they're fools. B, they knew they were doing something bad and they left their digital footprints all over their programs and allowed it to be very easy to um, learn that they were doing crimes. Yeah. Although, as you said, it went on for so long. So I wonder, like a certain part of it, I mean, this is what's always so interesting to me about these things is that the the OPSEC and, and the like, you know, the digital, you know, hiding and forensics is terrible, right? Like they're, mm-hmm. they're doing it fairly out in the open. 
they're colluding with one another. Like you said, in Florida, they're all talking about this. They have their own groups. Um, and so part of me wonders, like, is this hubris and, and just people thinking, you know, just being dumb? Or is it like, we got away with this for so long and mm. we've gotten away with other things like this that we don't have any faith in this system to catch us? That's a good Point. And I, the Gizmodo piece references a journalist who had been reporting on this in Israel for a long yeah. time, um, whose name I'm going to find, but who had been like threatened by uh, Simona Weinglass, uh, who had reported on this for the Times of Israel. Um, and she had been being threatened. Her family was threatened by people who were running these schemes until the FBI came in um allegedly like she noticed this connection she noticed a drop off in harassment when the fbi started arresting people um but up until then there were very few consequences so i I do think you raise a good point that perhaps perhaps their hubris was not unearned (laughs) perhaps i I won't complain about them parading around having little scammer conventions and yelling about how they're criminals because it sure did enable them to get caught but yeah it is it is kind of baffling that it took this long for something to happen yeah it's it's one of these weird things because you see this a lot um in in that um it's obviously at at a lesser level and and not you know this this much of kind of a, a criminal thing, but but these things have kind of been happening for a long time. And I think that like the illegality is much more clear in this instance. But in that Verge piece from nine years ago, you know, and and that 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 was kind of a subculture of kind of the affiliate marketing world that I've been obsessed with off and on for mm-hmm. more than a decade. I was obsessed with it before the Verge thing came out, and then the Verge thing was really good. Um, uh, the the reporter, the the freelancer who did um, that um, investigation, just did a, a stunning job. Um, but it's this weird thing where it's like there's this weird sense that you get that some of these people are going to get caught, but a lot of this stuff people just kind of get away with, right? And it's mm-hmm. just kind of this this underbelly thing. And and it's always been so fascinating to me how – because some of the stuff, like even like the infomercials that um, we used to see on TV in the 90s and, and some of the laws changed around what you could do in the 2000s and people don't really watch infomercials anymore because everyone watches Netflix, so it's a different sort of thing. But you used to see these like Don Lupree and these other people who would talk about how you could get rich. Mm-hmm. And it really was just a funnel into – a huge boiler room scam. And, and a lot of these people, you know, wind up going to jail for usually tax evasion or something like that, and sometimes directly scamming people. But these were things that like people were spending, you know, potentially millions of dollars a year on at like on, on infomercials, right? So mm-hmm. and, and these things are airing, um, you know, at late night across the country. It's not as if it's an unknown entity. It's just for whatever reason, the system doesn't care and, and it takes reporting like the the Israeli journalist and some other things to really kind of call it out. To, it feels like sometimes to force action to happen. It is really interesting that you bring up the infomercial thing because from all of you know the gifts that we see about infomercials now and infomercials are kind of famously like very over the top and silly and even slapstick at times, depending on what the product is. And from the descriptions, it sounds like these videos also kind of, they're very simplistic. It's this guy who is pretending to be a CEO. He's in a private jet. Mm-hmm. He's pointing to graphs of stonk go up. Um, he has a, 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 he's showing you a beautiful car. And it's this very sort of cartoon simplicity of wealth. Um, and as a content creator myself, and I'm sure you feel this way as well, like, I really am always thinking about, like, how how can I make something that will, like, impress people and be good and that they'll like and that will be quality and hold their interest and blah, 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 blah. But I feel like what we see over and over again with scams and things like that is it's, it's not sophisticated. It's not no. something that would even appeal necessarily to digitally literate people. Like when I think about certain TikToks, their level of production and complexity um, and savviness, digital savviness that comes with those. And these scams very specifically are not that. They're the antithesis of that. And I find that so interesting. 
No, you're exactly right. And I mean, I think it's interesting. We're going to talk about this, I think, with all of the, except for the the, the second one, except for like the, the ice cream scam. But this is kind of a thing that runs through because that's a, a different type of thing. But this is a common trend across kind of confidence schemes in general is that they're usually not sophisticated. Sometimes they are. And I think those are the ones that are almost impressive to me because usually it's a very base level thing. You're going after people who are either greedy or in many cases at a really low point in their life and they just need hope in something. And so they're not asking questions that they should be asking and they're letting their mind get away with, you know, kind of coming up with these fantasies of what things could be like and and ignoring a lot of signs about what things would do. There's a story we're not going to cover this week, but but we kind of talked about doing about uh, Mackenzie Scott, who is uh, the former wife of Jeff Bezos and how she has been giving away, you know, billions of dollars of, of her money. But now scam artists are starting to use her name and go after people who have GoFundMes and other things and, and directly prey on them and then use them the same way that you would uh, a lot of other um, you know, call um, like a, a lot of other like like Nigerian scams. They used to call them sometimes four one one scams. Uh, uh, there are um, you know, people who are there are all sorts of call center scams that take place where people say, you know, your computer has this or that, and and we're going to go through it. I mean, it's it's not dissimilar from that, except this time it's saying, um, I'm going to I, I saw your GoFundMe and I'm a billionaire and I'm going to give mm. you money. And it's really sad, but the reason those things work, and, and they're not sophisticated, like if you if you looked even a tiny bit, you would see something was amiss, but they're preying on people being vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And I think that in the in like this investment scam and, and in the uh the other scam we're gonna talk about, the really to Hollywood, like you're really preying on people being just dazzled by the idea of being wealthy and mm-hmm. and not oftentimes, you know, crossing their I's and dotting their T's and looking at stuff because the stuff is just, it's out there. But I, I say all that not to denigrate the people who be our victims of this because I don't think that they're dumb people. Uh, I mean, we've seen, you know, and it's not even like digital literacy changes it to an extent because we see on TikTok, we talked about this before, yeah. all the stupid get rich quick idiot stock oh, yeah, broker the advice financial people. advice. <laughs> yeah. And, and these are teens. Financial and, talk also, or finance talk. The, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Fin, fin talk or whatever. And, and you see like like TikTok is going to be a massive place where these traditional affiliate marketing get rich quick things mm-hmm. are going to take off. Uh, and it's perfect for it because A, kids are now very desensitized to the idea of seeing overt massive amounts of wealth from influencers. Yep. So, so it's not even one of those things where when we were younger, it was this ostentatious like larger than life thing, right? Like you didn't, you didn't, you weren't exposed to that all the time. Mm-hmm. Now you literally, every content creator you watch is doing their house tours and showing off their $50,000 watches and their, you know, $300,000 cars and this and that, and like really, really wealthy. And I personally have always questioned how wealthy a lot of those creators really are because a lot of it, I'm like, you're spending more money than you're bringing in. Mm-hmm. How are you doing this? But in some cases they really are bringing in just truckloads of cash but they're showing it off. And I think that desensitizes people to the sense that they're like, oh yeah, okay, this is attainable. It when becomes it's very, it, it looks easy. It looks obtain. easy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It looks like, oh, well, this is, this is something that I can do. And it's like, mm, no, it's, I, I'm sorry to bust anybody's bubble out there, but it's not. Um, but, you know, and, and I think that that is going to be a huge breeding ground for younger people who are digitally savvy to get sucked into this because, you know, like your mind runs away with you and you just think, oh yeah, this, this seems like a good thing. And before you know it, you've, you've spent money on software that does nothing. Yep. I think that's a really good point. Um, terrible transition, but let me tell you that this episode is brought to you by Pingdom from SolarWinds. Well, you've been listening to this podcast. How would you know if your website had gone down? Would you know if customers couldn't click that buy button or fill out a trial form? You might stumble across the problem by luck, but that means you've already lost out on new customers. You need something to tell you everything is running smoothly on your site and, more importantly, when it isn't. So you need Pingdom. Pingdom detects around 13 million outages every month. That's more than 400,000 outages every day. And for as low as $10 a month, Pingdom helps keep your sites online. It doesn't matter if you're a startup or a Fortune 500 company, you need real-time alerts about critical website issues. 
and customization of how you're alerted, whether that's via SMS, email, or your team's collaboration apps. Pingdom even tracks and analyzes your website's load time so you can see what's affecting the user experience. If you have a website, you need Pingdom. Take charge of monitoring your site in minutes and go to pingdom.com slash RelayFM right now for a 30-day free trial with no credit card required. Then when you sign up, use the code ROCKET at checkout to get a huge 30% off your first invoice. Uh, Thanks to Pingdom from SolarWinds for their support of this show and RelayFM. Kingdom.com slash RelayFM. Thank you. I think that that should officially be their jingle now. I'm working on it. You know, this is just the first draft. Like, it's going to it's gonna get better. I think that's really good. Like, I feel like, let's try to remember this. solid one? Next, yeah, it's a really good one. Okay. That's, like, that's, that's really catchy. I like that. I feel like it was kind of like a, a late night news, kind of late night news vibe going on there. Serena and Barnes, injury attorneys. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) All right. Well, our next story is extremely exciting. YouTuber Johnny Harris did a deep dive into McDonald's ice cream machines. And what he found will stop you cold. Yes, although uh, I, I should add, it's interesting. There was a parallel investigation that uh, covered the same stuff by um, Andy um, uh, Greenwald at Wired, um, or not Andy Greenwald, um, Andy. I have that article open. Andy Greenberg. Andy Greenberg. Sorry, Andy, because it, it, both of these things they're 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 great. Like it's great to watch the video. It's also a fantastic long read to read in Wired. Yeah. Um, they take slightly different approaches and really good stuff from both of them. And they're both in our show notes. Andy Greenberg listening to this podcast in a single tear rolls down his face. Um, Sorry, Andy. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Basically, as you may know, if you have been to a McDonald's, it is kind of a meme that their their ice cream machines are always broken. Uh, It's been made, jokes have been made about it on news, on social media, everywhere. Their machines are always broken. And it's kind of been widely accepted that Oh, they're broken. They're not actually broken. It is a very long cleaning cycle. And the employees tell you that they're broken because it is more simple to say than our machines are cleaning themselves and it could take hours and hours. That raises questions. No, no, they're just broken. But that is not the case. Uh, As Mr. Greenberg and Mr. Harris both reported, um, they, they are in fact sort of being held hostage by the McDonald's uh, corporate relationship with Taylor, the uh, machine, the ice cream machine manufacturer. So Mr. Harris interviewed franchise McDonald's franchise owners and read through a ton of McDonald's manuals and basically traced his way back to this weird relationship, not weird relationship, this monopolistic relationship that McDonald's has with Taylor, who manufactures yep. a lot of machines for various fast food restaurants. However, they're they're the industry standard, right? They're like the they, industry they, standard, they, yeah. But with their relationship with McDonald's is different because no McDonald's franchise owner can choose any different ice cream machine. They might have a couple choices for fryers or whatnot. They can only buy one specific model of Taylor's ice cream machine. Yeah, I believe... I believe that they might be able to get a uh, like a German machine, Ooh. but the problem or an Italian machine, the issue is, is that it'll take like a week plus to get parts. So it's one of those things that even if they have the option to do it, it's uh, some of the reliability issues are still there in terms of the the user um, and reliability in the sense that it takes a precise like user instructions for for things to work correctly. But it, then if you need servicing. Taylor has the monopoly on it of being able to have mm-hmm. like a whole industry of repairmen and parts, whereas this other one you would have to wait a long time, which for many That's franchises no would be like you you know because you got to sell ice cream because everyone Shamrock loves season. the McDonald's ice cream. I mean, Shamrock season is apparently a real thing. Oh, I remember Shamrocks. Oh wow, a sense memory is coming back to me. Um, <laughs> I hate those things. <laughs> I drank too much of one when I was a child, and it made me sad in my tummy. Um, 
Also, okay, the larger point is these ice cream machines have a genuinely just terrible, terrible user interface. It's very opaque. Uh, If anything fails with the machine, with its overnight clean or any other thing, it will give you, it will spit out this like strange code that you can cross-reference with your manual that won't really tell you a, a, a way that to fix it that makes sense or that is convenient. Um, it's just very difficult to diagnose what exactly went wrong with the machine and then to learn from that mistake how what to not to it. do next time and how to fix it. Right, so, right. Like like one of the examples, just to give people kind yeah. of an idea, um, is that so one of the reasons that these – in these machines, the, the McDonald's ones, to be clear, there is a reason why they are more complex than the ones that, say, like Burger King or uh, Wendy's use. And it's because they're better. Uh, they can do things. Well, no, but they are. Uh, they, oh, they can I'm do laughing things because like, it's true. McDonald's ice cream is very good. But but also the way that machines work is actually better. So most machines, like what you would have to do is you would need to take them apart every night, clean every part, put it back together. The way that the McDonald's machines work is that it can actually pasteurize the material left in the maker run through a process and then freeze it in, in, and work on it overnight so that when you come back the next day, you have ice cream. And so that is saving on the environment, it's saving on time, like it, it's it's a good thing. The problem is, is that if you have, say, too much or too little material in the machine before before you start that pasteurization process, then it can error out and it takes like four hours and you're not going to know until the whole period is over whether it worked or not. And then you're going to have to maybe you know, when you have to clean it, because you have to clean them a certain, you know, amount of time, like if you, when you're putting it back together, if you get, um, if you're putting back together slightly incorrectly, you know, if mm-hmm. there are all these parts and all, all these, uh, you know, different, I'm trying to think what the term is, um, like gaskets and stuff like that. Like if, if one of those parts is, is put back together incorrectly, then the machine won't work. And, the error codes that you get, as you mentioned, are completely foreign. And there are these things where you would need to consult these massive manuals to try to figure out what it even is. And you're talking about the people who are using these machines are not like these are designed to be like highly professional, like industrial machines. But the people who are operating them are, you know, hourly employees, many of whom are going to be teenagers who don't care all that much. Mm-hmm. And so um, what what happens is that you're kind of in, in a black box where you don't know what's going on. Or who just don't have time to to deal with that in the middle of a, a work day. Sure. But but even if you, even then it's just one of those things. It's like, yeah, you know, it's, it's like even if you were very skilled, yeah, it would be difficult to know just by looking at that the Greek that comes out of the machines, like what the issue is. So the the problem is, is that like a lot of times the repairs that happen, because uh, it's not as if uh, what we're going to wind up talking about where, where the you know this Cold War came in, it's not as if it stopped the machines from breaking, because that's not what it did. But it would, you know, um, speed up the time of getting things back up and running. Because what would happen is that, okay, the machine is acting weird. I don't know what it is. I'm, as the owner of the franchise, don't know how to access the service menu. I don't know what these codes mean. So I'm just going to call the repair person. I'm just going to pay them and they're going to come and they're going to repair it and fix it. And they might just be opening up a service menu and and, and typing in some things and and then getting it back up and running. But I'm incapable of doing that myself because of how horrendous the UI and some of the other stuff is. Because fundamentally, these machines are very, very old and haven't changed at all. Mm -hmm. And so that then opens up the opportunity for the next part of the story, which I guess you can talk about. Yes. I'll add just onto that briefly. Uh, software updates that Taylor does push to the machines often end up just adding more archaic error codes for people to get confused over. And so this is kind of, this is one of the ways that they make a lot of their money. They make 25% of their profit from sending repair people out to repair McDonald's or not ju- I don't think necessarily just McDonald's but out to repair their machines and right. up to like 13% of McDonald's ice cream machines can be broken at a time so as Christina said earlier it's very convenient to have so many repair people readily available but that's money that franchise owners are paying to repair machines not McDonald's corporate so not only that but the time that you have to wait for somebody to come repair and do that is time that you're not selling shamrock shakes or McFlurries or ice cream cones and that's and a tragedy it is a tragedy but it can also depending on what time of year it is and other stuff it, I mean that can be a not insignificant amount of revenue yep 
So the next part of the story is that a guy named Jeremy O'Harrison basically diagnosed this problem and invented a device that could connect to the McDonald's ice cream machines and properly diagnose them and send to uh, to the people who work there, to managers, like, this is what went wrong with the machine. This is literally exactly what went wrong with it and how you can fix it, which is information that it appears that Taylor has been concealing in manuals that it only allows its own technicians to access, which is deranged. Um, and these uh, these devices were in use for a while. Like franchise owners were like, oh, snap, that rules. And they were buying them um, and praising them. And it was great. And then McDonald's corporate got the wind up and basically sent out a memo to its franchise owner saying, we have found the device to be dangerous. There are safety issues and you mustn't, please don't use it. Please, we're begging you. Um, And they basically blacklisted it. I, I don't know that they said specifically like, you will be. You will have your franchise taken away if you use it. But no. they basically said, "Don't use this thing." They, they, they didn't say that, but what they did say, and this is the thing that's in the Wired article that's not in the YouTube video, um, they uh, because it goes into some information about uh, a, a very large McDonald's franchise owner who originally seemed like he was a fan of this device, which was called the Kitch. And it's basically like just a small little circuit board that would connect to the machine. And then it had like a software component where it would send you, you know, stuff either through email or through an app so you could monitor what was happening. And then if there was an issue, like you could remotely find out, like this is what's going on. I can see the machine. I know if everything's up and running or not, or I can figure out, okay, this is the problem. There's too much mix in or not enough, or this wasn't put together the right way. And now I can go through the process of fixing the problem. and originally, the the company uh, Kitsch had actually how they got into this is they were creating, um, uh, they wanted to create an automated frozen yogurt machine, and so they actually had a relationship with Taylor and were buying Taylor machines and hmm. were actively working with Taylor to even try to figure out diagnose how some of those things were going on. It was during the process of kind of you know building out this automated machine that they realized oh, the automated part is going to be super tough because of all these weird little intricacies about how the machines work that we can't account for. And we're spending all this time, you know, with people who buy our machines, you know, having to get them serviced and things like that, that it's it's not going to work. And so they realized, okay, well, the real business is let's figure out a way to reverse engineer what they're doing so that we can make it possible for the people who own these machines to know how to service them. And initially, they were working with with Taylor, and and Taylor even kind of told them, well, we can't work with you on whatever it is you're wanting to do, but if you were to, you know, monitor all the traffic that is coming out mm. of these machines, you would be able to see what's happening. And and they kind of took that as kind of a, a tacit or implicit kind of, well, you know, we're not going to do this for you, but this is how this would work. Um, that stopped when they started to have some success selling them to franchise owners. And franchise owners were now saving thousands of dollars a month on repair bills because they could, in many mm-hmm. cases, fix the problems themselves. What happened, uh, at least this is according to to the Kitsch people, is that they worked with this guy who was a very big franchise owner. And he gave a talk which seemed like he was going to be, you know, talking about how great these devices were. And then immediately after... McDonald's corporate sends out this email to franchise owners and basically says, if you use this, your warranty on your very expensive ice cream machine is now void. Also, this presents safety issues and this and that. And it was basically like a lot of fear mongering to be like, do not use this. Mm -hmm. Then it goes one step further. Taylor. Yes. yes. So go on to the next part. Ah, so McDonald's has... Its own solution. Don't worry, you can't use Kitsch. However, McDonald's is developing its own device, its own connectivity device that will diagnose your problems for you. And it's developing this, don't worry, in partnership with Taylor, who makes the machines that have a crappy interface and software updates that only make things worse, who get 25% of their uh, profit or revenue from fixing said ice cream machines when they break who are the only ones who are allowed to do anything with these machines. Don't worry. I'm sure that this will go great. Yeah. Yeah. And and now, uh, I mean, and and 
the the kitsch guy basically told um Andy, uh, for his wire thing, that he kind of viewed the article as almost an obit for his company because he doesn't think he's going to be able to take on the the legal prowess or or whatnot. Mm -hmm. But, you know, he's they did some investigative work and it looks like the franchise guy who had bought some of their devices then gave them to people who worked at Taylor. Which allowed them to, you know, their argument is maybe reverse engineer and copy the product. Ouch. Um, it, yeah. So, 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 that you know, seems Adam's pretty um, relevant to all the previous topics we've had about copyright and how that may or may not 100. apply to tech. Uh, yeah. Um, well, again, yeah, I mean, in this case, it's also super weird because you're talking about, you know, somebody who they reverse engineered Taylor's own processes. And so I, I don't know what legal standing they would have, but there certainly could be an argument I think you could make, at least on maybe a civil level, where you're like, hey, we sold this to you. You then gave this, violating our terms, to the manufacturer who then copied exactly what we were doing, undercut us, and then worked with the largest, you know, customer, McDonald's, to send out letters telling people, you know, that if they used our product, it would, you know, it was potentially harmful and would, um, you know, potentially, like, uh, would void their warranty and all of this stuff, uh, essentially, you know, putting us out of business. Like, I, I don't know if, if there will be anything they could win there, but like that seems like there's there's um all's fair in love and war, and then there's like anti-competitive AF yeah. behavior, right? So it, the the whole saga is just really fascinating, but it's also kind of messed up because at this point, you know, it's look, uh Kitsch was out to make money. They probably weren't charging enough, at least based on some of the stuff that was in the wired article. They raised their prices, but the initial fee that they were charging was certainly not enough for what they, they could have extracted from this, um, uh, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> but, uh, like, that doesn't mean that you deserve to have your whole business, like, screwed over. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like. Yeah, yeah. It, it's very, it's very low by McDonald's and Taylor, who, again, have a complete and literal well, okay, I, not complete because of what you just said about the Italian machines, but an essential spiritual monopoly on selling ice cream machines to McDonald's franchises. Uh, right. There's really not a lot of options for those people, and there's no, there's zero incentive for them to improve the software or the interface on these machines. Because right. There hasn't been like, eh. because it. Well, because it's this huge cash cow to the servicing side of the of the business, and, and I it guess doesn't you could affect argue- McDonald's at all. I was going to say McDonald's, I don't think cares. I think McDonald's has only cared insofar as like there was the McBroken website, which tracks down, you know, what machines are are working and not, and it's become a meme. And so it does become at a certain point for McDonald's, it becomes kind of a black eye. And it does like look poorly on them with the fact that like, you know, people frequently joke about the fact that the the ice cream machine is always broken. Like that's a bad thing. But, you know, it was one of those things, I guess, was kind of, you could sort of deal with it. But it took this small company who spent an awful lot of time and research and, um, you know, engineering effort to figure out a way to improve upon the Taylor product, um, to kind of force them into doing the same thing. I mean, something that I think that they'd offered this years ago, like uh, the, the franchisees would be lining up to, to use it. And then the, the crappiest thing to me is that they don't even have many of them out in test markets yet. It doesn't even seem like, at least from, mm-hmm. from um, Andy's reporting, doesn't even seem like it's really that finalized developed. So, like, you, you've put this small business basically out of business because mm-hmm. uh, you've scared everybody off of it. Um, your product isn't really market ready. And everybody's screwed. The franchisees are, are screwed because they're paying part of this, like, weird monopoly kind of, you know, thing that feels really gross if you think about it. It's like, okay, the machines aren't unreliable, but they're so finicky that if you don't, you know, know how to to read all the manuals and, and do all that stuff, you can't have it working And accurately. again, there was like a whole secret manual that they weren't allowed right. to have access to with secret exactly. codes for resetting the machine, which is nuts. It, it, it completely, right? So yeah, so it's like you don't you don't have that aspect. Uh, and And then you're like, okay, so we're having to pay all this money month after month after month for the repair stuff. And like, I don't think McDonald's is getting a kickback from Taylor on that. I really don't. Mm-hmm. But they have this weird, I mean, if they did, that would be collusion. And I don't, <laughs> and, and no one is alleging that. But I do feel like there's this weird symbiotic relationship where obviously 
the two were going to want to work together. And uh, I don't know. It was, it, the video is great. The story is great. I had no idea ice cream machines were so interesting. I didn't either. I was the also I should just say the editing on the video was superb. Uh, I really, really enjoyed watching it. There's a lot of very clever use of B-roll in there um, and some great shots of those hefty, hefty McDonald's manuals, which uh, he got his hands on, which is very impressive to me. Um, yeah, totally. Yeah, this is really, it. It it's on its surface, a fun story because it is about ice cream. But at the end of the day, it is about, you know, McDonald's franchise owners who aren't necessarily, you know, the wealthiest people in the world and this tech company, this small tech company kind of getting screwed over by two huge companies who are holding hands and dancing in a field and making products that only they can service um, and having a great time making money doing that. The broken McDonald's ice cream machine meme is interesting to me because I feel like, as you said, it is very, very bad, but it's, Certainly not as bad as it could be because at its core, it implies I really, really wanted McDonald's ice cream. I wanted it because I love it and I can't have it. So there's this like element of the the ice cream is always desirable in that case, even if the machine is broken. So I feel like like it's definitely not something that they're like, hooray, people are talking about how much they want our ice cream and they can't have it. But it's not. As it's not like a five alarm fire kind no. of product well, disaster it, story for them. No, it's not. And it's also one of those things that a lot of it, you know, it really comes down to a training and time. Uh, you know, how long is it going to take you to get the machine back up and running? Right. Like, it's not like it's going to be your machine's going to be broken for for weeks on end. It's yeah. like, OK, it's working one day, then it breaks. You're going to spend four hundred dollars. The guy's going to come out and fix it. And, and then, then it's, it's going to work and again again. And you're right, at $400, yeah. but people have ice cream. I, right. And, and and you're, you know, and you have whatever revenue you, you get from that ice cream, which is not as substantial. But it is interesting, I think, from like a right to repair um, standpoint. Yes. Because, and I think to me, like, that's where this is a very interesting parallel for consumer stuff. Because obviously, this is about business franchisees and, and whether they should have access to this or that. But I, I don't think that it's an unfair extrapolation to say this is not that different than some of the lobbying that some of the big tech companies do so that you can't repair your devices. Mhm. Yeah, yeah, it it is interesting. I I think there the minor difference to me is that people are relying people like have this machine in their business and are relying on it for like f- to produce products. But I guess that's not so different from say my company who bought a bunch of IMAX and are relying on them to produce videos for me. No, it's not. So. No, it's not. And in fact, it, I mean, and the similar thing there is that it's like Apple repair manuals are not available. Like you have yep. to be a certain repair technician. They limit what people can get access to what parts. And then some parts they don't make available to any outsiders at all. Some parts, even sometimes their own repair centers can't get depending on what it is. And mm-hmm. and there are things that, you know, um, a lot of the arguments have been like over the years that some stuff could be fixed and then they just choose not to. Um, there are some security things I think you could make, you know, arguments either way about, you know, about the importance of of how those things should be. But some of the stuff, I don't think that you can. There are also, mm-hmm. you know, design decisions, which this is what I think does make it slightly different. A lot of tech, like consumer tech companies make decisions that are maybe not explicitly designed to be unrepairable, but certainly no one thought about repair when they made those decisions, right? Like mm-hmm. you're, when you're soldering on the memory chip or the storage chip onto a device and you know that no one is going to be able to desolder and put it back on again, like that's a decision. When you're gluing batteries in or when you're doing, you know, using sorts of other glue or fabric on, you know, laptop stuff and that you have to kind of cut through to get to, like that's a decision. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's different um, than like pure, like the John Deere tractor who's famously is, has been very against any right to repair stuff because again, like, like Taylor, they make a tremendous amount of money off of their official repair part centers and, and, um, uh, service centers and whatnot. And, um, they don't want people who own these incredibly expensive tractors to be able to fix them, mm-hmm. but it's all in the same, uh, like 
vein, if that makes sense. That totally makes sense. One final thought for this topic, simply researching it made me really want McDonald's ice cream. Same. Yeah. So listeners, we're sorry about that. However, we also have to tell you that this episode of Rocket is brought to you by the IntraZone. Disclaimer warning, Christina Warren works for Microsoft, but I don't believe she's involved with this podcast. I am not. I'm 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 not involved and I did not know that they were going to be a sponsor, but that's cool. I keep surprising you. If you're looking for a new show to listen to, The Intrazone is there. It is a bi-weekly podcast. Let me tell you why, if you're me, if if you're a very specific person called Simone de Rochefort, it's a good time to hear about things like this because some of us just finished listening to a like 10-year backlog of 99% Hmm. Invisible and we're like, oh, wow, that's a huge spot opening up in our podcast library. But how do you find something new to listen to? The answer is you listen to Rocket and I tell you. Uh, the Interzone is a bi-weekly podcast with conversations and interviews on how Microsoft SharePoint, OneDrive, and related tech can work for you. So you'll hear from guest experts behind the scenes and out there in the field so you can see how SharePoint fits into your everyday work life to easily share and manage content, knowledge, and applications. I need a cool acronym for that. C-K-A. Ack. I like that. Ack. Oh my God. It's perfect. That's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Each show covers a bunch of segments like news and announcements. They've got a focused topic of the week. They bring in guest perspective. They've got FAQs of the week and they talk about upcoming events. Um, so previous episodes, for example, they talk about Office 365, OneDrive Teams, and MS Stream. They talk about security and compliance. They talk about AI and machine learning, as well as crisis management and working remotely, which I think a lot of us, (laughs) two things that so many people have had to deal with this year. Uh, so it's very valuable, Go and listen to it now. Just search for the Intra Zone wherever you get your podcasts. That's I N T R A Z O N E, or just click the link that's right here on the show notes. Go check it out. And our thanks to the Intra Zone by Microsoft SharePoint for their success of their what? Their support of this show and all of Relay FM. I hope it's a success. That sounds great. I love success. Heck yeah. Speaking of success. Haha, <laughs> very nice segue. Yes. <laughs> I aim to please. This next person did not succeed. We've got our third scam of the day. This one has a tinge of glamour, for it is a Hollywood scam, dear listeners. A man named Zachary Horowitz. This is a great story. Rags to riches. He was an actor out in LA trying to make it appearing in some small films, not finding great success. But by by dang gummit, he started a film company and he found investors and he was running this great thing where he would pitch investors on buying film rights for small films, you know, kind of schlocky horror stuff. And then he'd sell the rights to those films uh, to HBO for Latin American distribution at 15% profit. Ah. Uh, Ah, hurrah, it rules. Oh, he collected $690 million from investors for his movie deals. You love to see the system work. Well, it was all a lie. <laughs> he, Ponzi! Well, he had a Ponzi scheme where he had wonderfully, he had, I think, very much gotten his hands on copies of HBO and Netflix contracts because he, he had very passable uh, versions of those, but he was essentially taking money from investors, using that money to pay off his previous investors, but then still having enough money left over to play and buy things like a Beverly Hills home and many flights on private jets and lovely cars and point a luxury watch subscription, which like, when are they going to advertise on Rocket? Just curious. I, w- I was going to say, um, we would all love to have this to have them as sponsors because we'll become watch people. And um, yeah, I wish. I, yeah, you know, I want to be a watch person. Um, this is yes. So 
he kept getting people to invest more money, often going back to the same people and com- completely tricking them with these very uh, accurate documents uh, from services like Netflix, which specified like, oh, yeah, this is what screen resolution we need you to deliver your video at. Um, so very much tricking them. And then he was found out he has been arrested on April 6th on fraud charges. Uh, but he was found out earlier this year because one of his investors who was kind of suspicious uh, of him Actually, uh, his firm wrote to Netflix being like, they subpoenaed them and were like, give us all your documents on your dealings with this company. And Netflix's lawyers were like, we don't have them. And the investors company was like, you should look harder. And Netflix was like, can you, uh (laughs) uh-oh. And the investors sent over, you know, the documents that they had obtained Mm -hmm. from, um, Oh my God, Jeremy Zachary Horowitz um, of these contracts that had been signed, quote unquote, with Netflix. And Netflix looked at those documents and was like, "We have a big problem." So they uh, they got involved, obviously got to the root of this, and most people have gotten their money back, but not quite all of it. Although, as I said, Zachary Horowitz has been arrested. He has been charged with fraud. And uh, is, by all accounts, super guilty. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it sure seems to be. like, And, and what's interesting to me about this one, it, it kind of similar to the first story, like, not, not the best scam. No. Like, not that sophisticated, like, at all. No. But like, enough for him to get, get away people- with it for a while. A really long time. $690 million. That's so much money. Like, like that is genuinely, that's like a Marvel movie. Like, not like a, a top tier Marvel movie, but that's like, that's like a, a solid. I hate it like, when you put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it just is, one right? Marvel movie. How much could it cost? <laughs> right. But I'm just saying like, like that's, that's like, I I'm, I'm, I meant like the, the, the box office uh, yeah, the budget yeah. for, would be less, but yeah, but it's, it's, it's like. Like that—that's probably what Black Widow is going to do with the box office, and Black Widow should do better. Mad about that, but anyway, like, I think that's the I, thing because it's like six hundred ninety million total, but he's you know moving the money back and forth and paying people off. Well, yeah, living off of what two hundred nine, two hundred million or so. Oh, only, only having yeah. a, only two hundred million. Like, come on, dude, aim higher. Um, two hundred million is enough to get you a very nice life, but I think that's where he went ro- wrong because famously on Succession. Tom Wamsgans tells cousin Greg, oh, mm-hmm. 10 million is a curse. Like 10, nobody knows what to do with 10 million. You'll want more. It's it's too little and too much at the same time. Um, I feel like that must be 2 million. You get yourself into this tricky lifestyle that you have to maintain. Well, no, because you got to keep up with all the other rich people, kind of like what we were talking about. Like mm-hmm. you, you got to like it's keep big the problem. Joneses. Speaking of succession, um, fun little t- tidbit from this article was that as this was all happening, his acting career was starting to take off. Now, it seems clear like people would just add him to projects because of part of the funding things, but he did have, he wasn't in a movie with uh, with uh, Logan Roy um, uh, Brian himself, Cox. Brian Cox. Yep. What, which is such a weird connection, but very I apropos. Uh, I know, I saw this and I was like, that. this is such like a perfect thing. <laughs> I honestly, I, I can't, I hope that the LA Times does a podcast about this. Yes. Um, like, Honestly, if they don't, I, I don't know what the billionaire owner of the LA Times is doing because this is the perfect sort Other of- Other than like buying up Twitter trending so that I see their articles all the time and click on them and then realize that I don't have an LA Times subscription. Right, it, that. But but like, you know what would get me to subscribe to the LA Times when I don't live in California? A podcast. Would, uh, if they had something like that, it would be enough for me to be like, all right, I'm not, I'm, I'm going to add this to my, you know, like- um of things because like nothing against the, the la times they do a good job but it's a much more regional paper than the washington post or the new york times which i feel like are very good national papers it's kind of like the chicago tribune it's like if you don't live there <sighs> it's just a, you know i don't know but i would but they 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 should 100 be able to uh do a podcast on this um there's a really great podcast from Campfire Media, Campside Media, rather, called Chameleon, the Hollywood Con Queen from um, Josh Dean and Vanessa Gregoriatis. That's a good and, title. Yeah, and it's fantastic. And it's like this really crazy 
Hollywood scam. Um, I'll just read you the description. Over the past seven years, hundreds of Hollywood gig workers have been fooled into flying to Indonesia for a movie that doesn't <gasps> exist. Yeah. That's nuts. Yeah. Oh, it's my nuts. goodness. It's it's uh, it's like 10 episodes. It's really, really, really good. So I highly recommend it. I'll have put that in the show notes. But yeah, that was – the whole time I was reading this, I was like, I really want a chameleon-style podcast of this. And I mean, I think that the LA Times should obviously have first rights to do it. But if they're not going to do it, then I would like uh, Vanessa Please, and, somebody. and Josh yeah. to do it. <laughs> Uh, yes, to be clear, what we're advocating now is for billionaire-owned newspapers to start podcasts and for people who only make hundreds of millions of dollars to make more money. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, we would like to see it. Okay, so yeah, this this particular story doesn't really have a tech angle other than in – he probably got those documents from friends of his because well, he was connected Netflix. in the industry. Oh, yeah, and it's Netflix and HBO. Um, but it was a very bold – and completely inevitable Ponzi scheme. Like, I think you said when so uh, we first linked this article in our chat, like, what did he expect to happen? Yeah. Yeah, no, this is like, this is like a pure, this is such a pure play Ponzi scheme, um, which, uh, you know, as a lover of Ponzi schemes, as we know, I, I like, and, and, you know, look, uh, Bernie Madoff uh, died. Um, okay. All right. So that was a thing that happened. I guess. Yeah. Um, and so, but, but that kind of makes you think you're like, see the, the interesting thing about Madoff, Madoff was at least really, Madoff was good. Like his was a lot more sophisticated than this, right? Like this is very mm-hmm. Charles Ponzi, like level, like it would have been easy to track down and, and catch. Whereas like Madoff, like made it look like he was running a legitimate business and people worked for him and thought it was a legitimate business. Whereas I think this guy just like bought a really expensive house and was flying on private jets all the time and was like totally looking like he was a like a power player. Yeah. Yeah. And was able to pull that off for about as long as you would expect someone to be able to pull that off. And then his chickens came home to roost. Yep. Which we which we're which we love to see, but also we do. someone please give us an even more in-depth thing with this because after listening to Chameleon, like I I, I need this. I need my Jones. I need I need my Hollywood Ponzi scheme fix. Boy, if I were his wife, I would be uh, mad. I would have already filed for divorce in hopes that in, in talking with prosecutors to secure my own deal, whether <laughs> I knew or didn't. I, that, I'm just saying, like, that. That's the, that's the thing. He had friends that are apparently kind of implicated in this who were like, oh, no, we didn't know anything. It's like, mm, mm. I don't know, guys. Good I luck find with it that. so hard to believe because so he was working his network. So he was finding investors not just through these larger companies, but through friends who would then appeal to their family members or their own Mm -hmm. industry connections. And that's kind of how he worked his way up to these larger investors. I find it so hard to believe, like, if I, grandma in Illinois, invested in my nephew's friend's movie deal with HBO, that I wouldn't want to see the movie that I financed. Like, even if it's ostensibly on Latin American HBO, like, was nobody like, send me a screener, Zachary? I mean, I I don't know. I mean, and and it... Maybe, I guess the movies must have existed, but he just didn't have the rights. Yeah. And the movies did exist, or it's not even that he didn't have the rights, he didn't make the deals. So they make them, they, they, you know, they they make the movies, and then he's like, yeah, I'm going to get you paid for this, right? So they're raising money to get the films made, and then they're thinking they're getting the distribution deals, right? And then he thinks people are investing in this, and he's just going to flip it over. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think that what's interesting about this is just kind of notable. It kind of goes to the first scam, too. It's like confidence games work. I mean, this is just a matter of a guy who really was nobody, didn't have a lot of connections, but met a few people, was able to talk the lingo just enough, and then you convince that one person. You make that – you pay back – enough people at first that you build a reputation and then people vouch for you mm-hmm. and they don't have direct, you know, maybe experiences or maybe what experience they did have was positive, but they're not looking into your business. They're not looking into your bona fides. They're like, yeah, I just know that, you know, people told me Simone was great. So Simone's great. And that is kind That's of how I, I got on this podcast. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's how a lot of stuff happens. I mean, but, but yeah, but it's how a lot of stuff happens. People are like, yeah, I can say for so-and-so they're awesome. And, but, like, you don't really know. You're not, it's not like you're yeah. doing, like, the full vetting of it. And, um, I mean, maybe if you're lending someone millions of dollars, you should be, like, looking into that a little bit more. A little more, But yeah. at the same, 
having said that is this weird thing when you have that much money where it's like this whisper network and it's like you assume that everybody has checks everybody else out. I mean, Anna Delby, right? Like that's kind of was her thing. Like the rich people kind of just assumed that she was rich because she seemed to play the game enough that that nobody was questioning anything. Like she was even able to fool the banks. Mm -hmm. So, yep. I don't know. Moral of the story is don't. Or if you are going to do it, just be entertaining so that we can do segments about it. That's that's my selfish I, I prefer ask. to leave my don't nebulous. I don't want people to know who it's addressed to. I don't want them to know what I'm telling them not to do. I just want them to know, don't. Fair. Ooh. This episode of Rocket is brought to you by Parallel from Relay FM, and I promise this is not a confidence scheme. If you like this show, there's a good chance you'll like Parallel. Whoa! Accessibility in tech has come a long way in the past few years. Operating systems can speak, display high-contrast text, and support alternative ways to touch the screen or move around it. And big players in the tech space now speak regularly about their access efforts. But are those efforts and all that software any good? Hosted by journalist and accessibility expert Shelley Brisbane, Parallel is a tech podcast with accessibility sprinkles. Shelley and her guests put accessibility into a larger context. Sometimes it's about devices and software. Sometimes it's about living in a world that's powered by more tech every day. Accessibility is the icing on the cake. So some of their great episodes include uh, A Newbie's Guide to Productivity, as well as how the iPhone's LiDAR sensor will revolutionize accessibility. Uh, two things that we, I think, have talked a bit about on the show and that we care about deeply and that Shelly can lend a lot of expertise to on her show, Parallel. So join Shelly Brisbane and her guests at relay.fm parallel or search for Parallel wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Ah, Christina, what are you doing this week? Trying not to participate in all the stupid base camp drama. Ah, but we're going to have to talk about it next week, won't we? I don't know. I'm hoping that it'll go away by then and we can ignore all the bad people with their bad hot takes, Mm. with their small businesses that have outsized influence that I don't want to give oxygen to. This is my way of actually just also acknowledging that, yes, there was a big brouhaha and internet drama over Basecamp this week. We're not, we obviously didn't talk about it. And I, whether we talk about it next week or not, I don't know. It'll depend on where things go. But my opinion, at least right now is like, and I'm, I'm breaking this, but like, I I don't, I don't want to give it more oxygen and attention than it's worth. But so I'm trying to stay out of Twitter fights is what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to stay out of like the That's discourse. That's big for you. <laughs> it really is, honestly. I feel like I'm growing, uh, maybe. Um, I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying to have But are you person. going to stop, quote, tweeting Andrew Yang? <laughs> oh, never. <laughs> no. I, no, I'm going to have to pay one of his freaking blue, like, cap mofos, like, $500 because he is going to make it to primary day. And I bet that he wouldn't, and I was clearly wrong, so I'm going to have oh, to pay that. Oh, no. Christina. I mean, whatever, whatever. It's fine. All right. Well, here's the thing. Like, and and this is this is probably good for people on this podcast to listen to because I do stupid stuff like buy meme stocks and make bets with strangers on the internet and and get into Twitter wars and and other nonsense that someone of uh, the ripe old age of 29 should not be doing. That said, if I make a bad bet, like I'm not gonna like renege on it. Like I'm not gonna not pay. You know. All right, that's good to know for our listeners who would like to try their own confidence schemes and make See, this bad is exactly bets with it. Christina Warren. <laughs> this is exactly it. You, you can you can scam me so hard, I swear. Ah, uh, what are you doing, Simone? What am I doing? So my wonderful roommate has got me into watching Ninety Day Fiance, and I'm <gasps> Thank obsessed you. with it. Okay. <laughs> I got really, really into it right before the pandemic last year um, because it was on Delta flights all the time. And then I had to go back and watch it. And then like halfway through the summer, everyone who used to laugh and make fun of me, it was finally like, oh, this is the best show. I was like, I told you. I'm really glad you're into it. What season are you on? Uh, We're watching the first season of Before the 90 Days because I Mm -hmm. I guess apparently they're about to take it off of Hulu. But she promised that she's going to subscribe to cbs discover or whatever nonsense you're gonna have to go to now to watch it it is exquisite the amount of yelling that i have done Mm -hmm. at my tv is Mm -hmm. unparalleled the character journeys unfolding before my eyes 
incredible. Mm-hmm. The producers do such a good job. <laughs> First of like setting you up. So the premise of Before the 90 Days is um, so 90 Day Fiance is when they come to the US and they have to stay, they have to get married within 90 days because that's what the marriage visa allows. Before the 90 Days is about people meeting people that they've generally only talked to online, going to visit them and collect the evidence that you would need to then apply for the marriage visa and prove like, yeah, we have an existing relationship. Here's us having fun together we should be allowed to be married. Um, so it's a, in this season, at least, it's been a lot of people meeting for the first time their internet boyfriends and girlfriends, which results in the incredible phrase, I'm about to meet my girlfriend for the first time. <laughs> Being said so many times by mm-hmm. so many people. Um, and they do a really good job of setting it up so that with a lot of them for a while, you see the American person's perspective and then the other person's pictures. So you're like, oh, God, are they going to be a catfish? So then right. finding out, oh, my God, this person is real and they're gorgeous. Like, that's an exciting moment. But then there's always so many more moments that follow that of increasing yes. levels of unbelievability. It is an incredible show. It's a fantastic show. And and um, I, think, I think it was season five season five or season six is one of my favorites because there were so many like great couples. I'm trying to think of the guy's name. Um, is it who, Big Ed? Big Ed is is great. But the one that that I'm actually uh, thinking about is season six, Colt and Larissa. So, wow. Wow. Like, you, you don't know who you hate the most, which just makes it really fun to watch. Like, everyone who's involved in the relationship, which involves Colt's mother – um, is, uh, is terrible. And Oof. the whole thing, like you feel bad in some senses for some of these, because in some cases, like you watch the show and you, you think, okay, well, these are people who are clearly trying to get a visa and are taking advantage of the man or woman to get them out here. And sometimes that's the case. And then in other cases, it's like, no, they've been sold a bill of goods that this person is rich and has this great life and has all this stuff. And then that person is not any of that. And now mm-hmm. you're somebody who is from another country who's stuck there and you're like, okay, well, what am I going to do? It's yeah. The show is delightful, and its drama is unparalleled. It is pure trash, but it is also completely mindless, and I think very enjoyable. It's incredibly enjoyable. I, I like making – I have my list of, like, couples that I want to succeed, and then I have my separate list of people that I am very, very angry at. Yes. <laughs> Because some people just are making bad decisions out there in the world and being disrespectful of their partners. And I'm angry at them, Sean. Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes, yes, Sean. Um, if you have never watched Love After a Lockup, that is another oh, really I good one. I have not. So that's one where people who are um, in, in prison or in jail – um, usually they're in, they've entered into relationships while they've been incarcerated. And then after they get out, they're embarking on a relationship for the first time. In some cases, they knew each other before they went in and are still trying to kind of navigate things. But man, is some of that stuff bananas. And again, it's one of those things where you see the different perspectives and some people you really wanted to work out and some people you're like, you, you, you did what now? Um, it's, it's really, it's also just remarkable television. Mm-hmm. So 90 Day Fiance and Before the 90 Days are currently on Hulu until probably immediately when this pu- podcast publishes, they'll be taken away and put on some other app. I will let you know, listeners, uh, because I will be watching this show until I die. Uh, hey, Christina, where can we find you online? You can find me at film underscore girl on the Twitters and the Instagrams and the videos that I do at work at youtube.com slash Microsoft developer. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at doomquasar and at youtube.com slash polygon. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We'll be back with you next week with new tech topics and a third host. Brianna Wu will be back from uh, being vaccinated with superpowers and antibodies. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you liked it, please consider giving it a rating on Apple Podcasts or just telling a friend, hey, you gotta listen to this. You gotta listen to these ladies. 
end their tech podcast by talking for 10 minutes about 90 Day Fiance. That's mm-hmm. what we deliver to you because no one it else is. will. <laughs> no, they won't. So please rate and review us and and uh, and follow us on, on Apple Podcasts. We contain multitudes. This episode of Rocket is terminated. Terminated. <laughs>